Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 7, verse 25, the very end there, and going through chapter 8, verse 15. And here we are in the process of God getting his people out of slavery in Egypt before he gets them to the promised land we were just talking about. And this is a part of that. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do pray that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed. You would help us to hear your word. You'd help us to have ears that are ready to hear, minds that are ready to think, and hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives, that your word would fall into our hearts and lives like seed falling on good soil, where it grows and produces a crop. How do we pray that by your word and by your spirit, we would be those who bear fruit for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 7, verse 25 through eight fifteen. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. And the frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Our gospel reading is from Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. This is just after Jesus has come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, as we read last week. It says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. 
And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. As we approach our sermon text this morning, it's Revelation chapter 7, and it's the whole thing. And as we get to that, by way of placing us in context. I want us to see the video that I showed last week, except that I didn't show it last week because everything broke while we were trying to show it. So we're going to try it again this week. If it works, then great. And if it doesn't, we're going to stop it immediately (laughs) and not do that again. So are you ready? All right, let's go. something. When you think about that in the context of what God is doing in our world, the restoration of a world that was created good and yet has gotten all broken down in all kinds of ways because of sin. And yet this is what the whole Bible is about is that God is not going to just, well, guess that's it then. and let it go, but instead he is going to do the work that it takes to restore his good creation, to be good again. And so, as I was saying last week, one of the things I really love about this video is, you know, if someone were to bring me a painting like this and say, hey, can you make this look like new again? The answer is no. I would have some guesses as to how maybe we could go about it, but I can assure you it would not look like new when it was finished. And so it takes somebody who actually knows what they're doing. And so a lot of the steps in that process, you're like, that just looks destructive. It looks like you're ruining everything. There are times you can't even see the picture on the front. because It's got it flipped over and scraping the stuff off the back. And you're like, I don't even recognize this anymore. And as we go through the book of Revelation, a lot of this is the kind of stuff we see is the process of God restoring his creation to something that is good and beautiful. But a lot of times as we go through, it looks like everything is crazy and out of control and you can't even recognize the good creation because it seems like there's so much destruction and devastation that's happening. But one of the things that we see throughout is that God is the one who is on the throne. We sang earlier a line that is... You know, as we go through the whole book of Revelation, but really as we go through the whole of our lives, it's the message of the Revelation it comes through in the song we sang, this is my father's world. And that line is, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. 
And that's what we gather together week after week, reminding ourselves of that God really is still on the throne, that in Jesus, he has already done what it takes and is continuing this process to restore his good creation and get rid of evil once and for all. That's the context of the whole thing. Now, as I've said before, when you come to the book of Revelation, make sure you've read the whole rest of the Bible and are pretty familiar with the language used because that's the language that gets used throughout. And so we will see that again here. We'll go through some of that this morning. But this is what John next sees in his vision after we've had the question that came at the end of the seven, or not seven seals, six seals. So there's a scroll that the lamb has taken and there's the only one worthy to open the seal, break the seals and open the scroll. And every time he breaks a seal, we see, well, the first four, we see more devastation and the kinds of things that just uh, cause so much suffering in our world. And then with the fifth seal, you see people who have been killed because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they are crying out to God and saying, how long is this going to go on? And the answer is not forever, but for a while. And so he tells them to wait, wait until more have been killed. And then, then it will end. And then when the sixth seal is open, we see what looks like the end of the world actually beginning. And as this is happening, those who have been opposed to God start running and hiding and calling for the mountains to fall on them. They would rather die than to have to face God and, yeah, face up to their rebellion against him. And so they have this question they ask at the very end of chapter 6 where it says, They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? That is a great question. Who is it that can actually stand in the time of judgment? And we talked about this a little bit last week in the parable that Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the two houses that both face the rain's coming down and the stream's rising and the wind's blowing and beating against the houses. One stands and one falls. What's the difference? And that's what their foundation is. Built on the rock or it's built on the sand. And Jesus says that what those actually are about are those who hear his words and either put them into practice or not. And those who actually are following Jesus have their lives built on a firm foundation and those who aren't don't, no matter how much they're hearing what he says. Anyway, so that's the answer that we get there. Here's the answer we get in Revelation. Same kind of answer, but with a very, with very different imagery. Says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. 
From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that something? Very different imagery, and yet... If we're following along with the imagery, if we've read the rest of our Bibles, it shouldn't be entirely unfamiliar as to the message that is being communicated here. So we start with the, the answer to this question, you know, who is it that's going to be able to stand? And we end up seeing, or the first thing he sees are the angels at the four corners of the earth that are We're not going to destroy everything yet. Not yet. Because we still have to put the the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Did you know this was a thing? It's so weird. When you ask people about the book of Revelation, it seems like some of the things that are first mentioned is, oh man, there's, you know, I I don't know a lot about it, but I definitely know it's, it's about the Antichrist. It's about the mark of the beast. It's about the number 666, right? That's, that's, that's what you hear more popularly. It's weird, though, because Antichrist, as a term, does not appear in the book of Revelation. Uh, the number 666 is not a major thing in Revelation. And the mark of the beast people tend to know about. But few people seem aware at all of the mark of a lamb. This, I think, is strange. That here it is. It's... This is what has to happen, is people have to be identified as the people of God. There's going to be this uh, seal that is put on, on them. And I think this is weird. Oh, i got too many things here. Um, I think it's kind of weird in the same way that if you were to ask people to tell the Exodus story, like what is the Exodus story about? And instead of saying, oh, well, the Exodus story, that's, that's about God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt, out of the suffering that they were enduring there under the hand of Pharaoh and his oppressors. He was bringing them out of this into a life of freedom and relationship with him in 
a land of freedom. This is where he can be their God. They can be his people. That's what the Exodus story is about. It's God's powerful working in their lives to bring them out of slavery and into freedom in relationship with him. If instead of saying that, say, what's the Exodus story about? And they said, oh yeah, that's that story about the frogs. I mean, on the one hand, sure, frogs are involved. (laughs) And there's a particular part of the story where that's particularly important. We read that earlier this morning. But to say that it's just a story about the frogs really misses the whole point, doesn't it? And I think we tend to do this as we read something like Revelation, where we latch on to these things that catch our attention, and we think that's what the whole thing's about. And we miss that the whole thing really is a revelation of Jesus Christ and his victory. And so, again, as I've titled this series, titled it, God's Victory in Christ Revealed to the Church. And that's what we ought to be looking for and thinking on as we go through this. Now, I mentioned the mark or the seal that is put on people as God's servants. Well, what is this? We have this kind of language anywhere else in the Bible before this, or is this just show up brand new? Yeah, there's really not much of anything in Revelation that shows up brand new. It all comes from somewhere in the, uh, the rest of the Bible. And I'll give you just a few things. Oh, why? I got too many papers and they're all scattered. There we go. So in Exodus chapter 28, we actually have names of the sons of Israel given to Aaron as a priest. And these are to be on Aaron. He is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. And a little bit later it says, then what you're to do is to make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it and attach it to the turban It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever the gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually, so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. You hear this? Aaron, as high priest, has a seal on his forehead, holy to the Lord. You continue on, you see something similar happening. That's what we see in Revelation in Ezekiel chapter 9. I'm not going to read that all right now. You see similar kind of language of the having a mark that identifies the people of God so that they don't endure what others around do in the Passover story, right? Where you have the blood of the lamb that goes over the door and then angel passes over and they are not destroyed. We're going to come back to this. We come back to what this seal may mean in a bit. Because he hears that this is what's going to happen. And then he hears this. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. This is who's sealed. It's 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay. And then we heard 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. And you add it up, it it works. (laughs) But what is this? Who is this? And this is where it gets really fascinating, especially as we look at things we've seen earlier. This is like a military census roll call kind of a thing, except it's got these big round numbers, 12,000 from each tribe. 
And so we see this 12 times 12 times 1,000. We see this number. Sometimes we see 12 times 12. Sometimes we see 12 plus 12, 24 elders we saw earlier, as a way of representing God's people. So here we have them. And 12 thousands, and then, oh, and then multiplied by 1,000. It's a huge number. And we have uh, 12,000 from these 12 tribes. And they're being called out as though for battle. All right, here we go. But then what happens? We don't, we don't see a battle here. We don't see the people of Israel actually march out in battle. Instead, but that was what we would expect, right? It's the same thing as what we saw earlier, both with Jesus when people are expecting him to be this Messiah who is a military leader who rides in on a white horse and drives the Romans out, and instead he rides in on a donkey and dies on a cross. And we go, well, that's not what we expected at all. And then we see the same thing in Revelation chapter 5 where John hears that there is this Lion of Judah. He's the one who's worthy. This Lion of Judah who's conquered. And we go, oh. And so you look to see the Lion of Judah and his, all his strength and power and how he's going to just trample over all of his enemies. And instead what do we see? He looks and he sees a lamb standing as if slain. And we say, a sacrificed lamb that yet lives? That's... That's this lion that we heard about? Not what we were expecting, is it? Same thing here. You hear this roll call of 12,000 from each tribe coming out in their military power, and we're like, all right, here we go. It's time for battle. And then he looks and he sees not the kind of army that you would expect dressed for battle. Instead, it says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding, not swords, palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And of course, an an elder then asks John, you know who these guys are? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. You know who they are. You, you have this heavenly perspective. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And then goes on from there with these wonderful things that are to come for these people, particularly in their relationship with God through Jesus. But do you notice that they have, they're wearing white robes and they're white because they've been washed in blood? This is, this is one of the ways you know we're dealing in symbols here because you don't get things white by washing them in blood. You don't see that commercial for laundry detergent. Now with blood, it's, no, that's just, that's just going to make it not white. But if we're talking about as a symbol of purity, as a symbol of righteousness, it is those who have been made righteous by Jesus and by his death on our behalf. That's who he's talking about here. Those who have come out of the suffering caused by the world, not those who are exempt from it, by the way, but those who have come out having made it through as those who are following the Lamb. This is, it says, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
He who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Presumably, they have been hungering. They have been thirsting. Not anymore. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. It had been. Not anymore. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why do they need their tears wiped away? Because they've been through suffering. They have been through the hardships of this world. This is similar to what we saw in chapter 6 of the people who have been crying out to God because of the suffering that they had endured. Same kind of thing here. This is who these people are. Now, remember, John hears that there's a lion, and he looks, and he sees a slain lamb. Then he hears that there's this mighty army ready for battle from the tribes of Israel, and then he looks, and he sees people who have been made righteous by Jesus, who have suffered a lot, just as Jesus has suffered. And yet, here they are, alive with no more suffering. You say, this, this is the group of people that we're talking about earlier on who have this seal. Because remember, it was, who are we going to seal? It's the 144,000. Well, who are the 144,000? Not what we expect when we first read that. It's this great multitude no one can count from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. But it's those who have followed the lamb as their shepherd. Not a great image. A bunch of sheep following around a lamb. (laughs) But of course, it's talking about the lamb who was sacrificed for us. This is what Jesus talks about. John chapter 10, when he talks about, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life. For my sheep. And he says, Those who are my sheep hear my voice. They follow me. He continually calls people to follow him throughout the Gospels. Some do, lots don't. But this is this is that call. In case you're still wondering about this, I told you we'd come back to more of that seal language. I mean, people being marked. When we get into the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. There are so many verses in the New Testament that use the same kind of language talking about the same kind of thing. It is those who have received the Holy Spirit into their lives. We talk about this as we prepare for communion each time before we take it and talk about those who have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, thereby choosing by faith to identify with Christ rather than with the ways of the world. It's those of us who are identified with Christ 
rather than with the ways of the world. This is what Revelation chapter 7 is talking about. And it tells us that we are not those who will escape the sufferings of this world. But that as we go through these sufferings, we don't go through them alone. And we do so in the hope of the day when suffering will be no more. We will not be those who face the suffering of final judgment. Instead, that for us will be a day of rejoicing in the salvation we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. One final thing. When thinking of the expectation versus reality, we think of the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, and we see a great multitude no one can count from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. I was thinking earlier this week, it's really interesting how easy it is to get things twisted just enough and how big a difference that makes. I was thinking, you know, the Bible tells us that we are to have godly power in this world. This is what we see in this multitude with their palm branches who have actually suffered and died rather than give in to the ways, to the, ways of the world. They continue to follow Jesus. This is a power that is hard for the world to even recognize, but it is a greater power than all the weapons of the world combined. So anyway, so the Bible tells us that we are to have godly power in this world. And Satan doesn't reply by saying, no, that would be too obvious. Instead, he seemingly agrees and says, yes, God does want you to have worldly power. And many of us don't even notice the change he has made, much less recognize the significance of it. Having godly power in this world and having a worldly power in the name of God are two very, very different things. We expect the one. We expect the worldly power in God's name. And we have all the way through so much of the Bible, and yet God has insisted throughout it's different than that. It's always a godly power in this world. There's no other way you make it across the Red Sea. There's no other way you make it into Jericho. There's no other way the kingdom of God comes into this world but through his power working in our lives in really strange and unexpected ways to the rest of the world, but all to the glory of his name and for the redemption of all creation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.